so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Samuel James, who's an editor and writer who focuses on issues of theology, technology, and society. Today, we talk about a recent article he wrote in World Opinions about pursuing truth in the digital age and the effects of social media on our society. Samuel serves as an associate acquisitions editor at Crossway Books, and he's a columnist at World Opinion, a regular contributor to First Things and the Gospel Coalition, and his writing has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and National Review. Samuel and his wife, Emily, live in Louisville, Kentucky, and they have two children. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Samuel, thank you so much for joining us today on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your interest and background and kind of the issues surrounding technology, theology, and society? Yeah, thanks, Jason. It's really great to be here. Um, I think for me, kind of similar to how millions of other people are, it's not just theoretical, it's personal. My first social media account was Facebook in my senior year of high school. Uh, and that was a big part of what it meant to be an older teenager at that point and kept it through college and things like that. Um, so most of my adult life has been, uh, involved with social media and digital tech, uh, at some point. But like a lot of people my age, I'm old enough to remember when it wasn't always like that. Uh, I distinctly have memories of, of a childhood and an adolescence that wasn't spent framed entirely by the internet. And as I've thought more and more and have become a parent in recent years, I've reflected quite a bit more on the change that that kind of technology has, not just on my daily habits, but on the way I think. And lately, particularly in the last like five or six years, uh, in terms of American society and politics, I've become very interested watching certain people that I know and have, have known uh, in person, not just online, uh, really change how they think and become, in a way, different kinds of people and to be able to trace that change back to their digital habits. And so that kind of got me thinking, like, wh- what am I looking for here? Like, what what is going on? Why are some people clearly 
not the kind of person that I knew them to be four or five years ago. And honestly, the biggest change in their life is how much time they're spending online, how much of a platform they've been trying to grow. And then the lights kind of came on for me a while back ago when I read Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows, uh, which was a really transformative work for me. And Carr's book is actually 10 years old. But even in 2010, Carr had his uh, finger on the pulse of something really significant about the way the Internet not just changes our habits, kind of changes our mood, but actually reshapes our minds to where we think internetly, if that makes sense. We th- There's an epistemological element to the Internet that conditions us to think certain ways and to not be able to think other ways. And the research that Carr presented in that book tied together some kind of theological and personal strands that I've been dealing with in a really compelling way. And and looking at that evidence was really an impetus to start thinking more seriously about what is this technology? How is this affecting me? How is it affecting others? And what are the ways that we have to be conscious of this, even in a cultural context where we can't just hide under a rock? We can't turn back the clock and pretend like these technologies don't exist. Uh, but what what do we have to speak back to these technologies in order to hold on to our intellectual integrity, hold on to our commitments, and hold on to what the Lord has told us to believe? Yeah, I think that's really helpful. I laugh when you said that you remember a day before the internet. I'm about the same age, but I also don't remember that because my dad had uh, he was involved in a Fortune 500 tech company for most of my childhood, and we actually had the internet before most people did, um, and so I don't actually vividly remember many days without some form of the internet. But I I had a similar experience to what you were saying with uh, Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows. For me, it was Jockey Lewell's Technological Society, so a much older work. Uh, He wrote it in the 50s. It wasn't translated until the 60s into English. But it was kind of that eye-opening experience when it was technology is a lot more than I ever thought it was. It has much more influence. It's shaping and forming and well, I talk a lot about here on the podcast, it disciples us. It's shaping and forming us into a certain type of person. Um, and that was written well before the internet was even a thing, much less social media and a lot of the platforms we deal with today. I know you've written pretty extensively on technology and society, especially over the last few years. And so obviously we're going to get to your article, your column that you did at World recently. Um, but what are some of the bigger issues that you see outside of maybe the epistemological issues in terms of technology, what are some of these issues that you think are pretty pressing that we as the church need to be thinking proactively about today? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one thing that kind of goes a little bit under the radar is simply thinking about parenting and thinking about family structures in these technologies. I hear from a lot of people who are talking about you know, seeing increasingly younger uh, sets of kids having their own iPads or having their own iPhones. At this point, it's not uncommon at all to see, um, you know, 11 and 12 year olds just walking around with their own tablet and to understand kind of what that is. That's a gateway to an incredibly overwhelming other world. And there's because of the nature of the Internet, there's just not as many buffers between the user and what's out there. I think that's a big one. And Christian parents have thought for a long time about content and wanting to protect their families and their children from um, things like pornography or vulgarity. But I think we need to start thinking about like what does it mean to protect our family from poor modes of thought and lesser modes of thought? Like how can we 
prepare our fa- our children and prepare our families to receive the word of the Lord in scripture, um, embodied spiritual practices in the local church? How do we prepare to receive that as kind of the, the anchor of our worldview instead of becoming more prone to think internetly, as I was mentioning earlier? So I think that's a, that's a big, a big perspective. And another one too, I think probably has to do with the way the internet is changing our relationship to our spiritual practices. And the obvious example is the way that the pandemic has driven people toward digital church and live streams and things like that. And there's some really helpful debates to have about to what extent, you know, should local churches maintain a live stream for the benefits of members who can't be there. Uh, And I'm not pretending to have all the answers there. I do think one thing that is a little bit discouraging is that it seems like this technology has picked up in wake of COVID and there's not as much conversation around when to pull it back as there should be. And now it it feels as if a lot of churches and a lot of ministries are simply viewing their live stream and people joining live stream as an unchangeable fact of what it means to do church in the 21st century. And I think that's, I think that's really dispiriting. And I think it's, it requires a response. I think we have to, we have to speak very precisely to that issue uh, because there, there are some severe and irreparable discontinuities between uh, the technology of the internet and what it means to be an embodied member of a local church. So those are two of the ones that I think are most presenting for a lot of the people that I talk to and certainly for the way I think about myself and my family. Yeah, I think you're exactly right on that. And that's something that I've noticed, especially with my own children. So we have a three-year-old and a five-year-old and the ways that they interact with like Siri or the ways I even interact with Siri where I get angry sometimes or even find myself wanting to say thank you uh, after Siri does something that we ask it to do. There's a lot of those kind of conversations that's really interesting, but it's the, our children are growing up in a society. So we remember, at least you do, I, I told you earlier, I don't, uh, remember a day before the internet, but even the day before social media or the day before all these smart devices in our home. And I think you're really onto something there, especially with children, is this is the world that they're inhabiting. They will grow up with these technologies. And so it's not so much that we can keep our children from them. It's how do we form them into more holistic people who are ultimately pursuing after the Lord, but thinking kind of biblically and theologically and ethically about these tools. And that's really what we hope to do here on the podcast is to help not only parents, but technologists and leaders and thinkers to be kind of processing a lot of the information that we're receiving, kind of the onslaught and too much information in many accounts every single day to be thinking through those things with a biblical mindset and biblical worldview. I know that I've long benefited from your writing, especially your recent column at World was really helpful for me in navigating some of the tensions and some of the thoughts that I've been having, especially around the nature of truth. I mean, we see a lot, a lot of conversations surrounding misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories. But I think sometimes we kind of think about those are the main kind of presenting issues in terms of the uh, kind of contest over truth today. But I think you're really getting at some stuff, too, is the way that technology is shaping and forming us and how it's forming how we view other people, how we define our own beliefs. And so I wanted to kind of unpack a little bit about what you do in the article. Can you explain to us a little bit about what prompted you to write this article about the nature of truth in the digital age and kind of the tribalization of truth in many ways? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, 
I think I mentioned it in the article, the news story I, that I came across a couple weeks ago that said, uh, you know, based on some internal documents that had been uh, leaked by a Facebook, it turned out that some of the largest Christian themed pages on the site were, were not operated by ministries or even necessarily by Christians. They were troll farms out in somewhere in Central Europe. And so the thought, you know, of watching particularly people that were close to me in, back in 2016, kind of getting their information and sharing uh, memes and things like that about particular candidates or particular parties. And the, the idea that, you know, they, they never thought in their wildest dreams that this would be a troll farm out in Europe. But nevertheless, that was the source of that information. And that information was designed. It had a purpose by its creator to elicit a certain type of response. And so that's that really was the burden of the article was speaking directly to Christians who are receiving their information from sources that are not rooted in transcendent truth. And one of the things I talk about a lot nowadays is something I've termed negative epistemology, uh, which I take to mean it's the w- about the way you form your beliefs. So I think the way the Bible calls us to form our beliefs is to take every thought captive to the mind of Christ, which involves thinking carefully, thinking along the lines of transcendent truth, applying biblical principles, and then trying to articulate what Jesus would say about this particular issue, what the word of God says. And what I see in a lot of people right now, especially in the influence of social media and things like that, is when presented with a challenging topic or a question that they're, that's pretty novel, what they'll do is they'll kind of see who's saying what. And, and if the wrong kind of people, the people that they don't like, the people they perceive to be kind of on the other side of them politically, culturally, it, it kind of depends on whatever they're saying. And so I'm just going to say the opposite of what they say because I know they can't be right. And I think that's a very destructive way to go about forming our beliefs. And I think it's antithetical to the development of Christian intellectual integrity. In, in order to think about things, we have to be able to think positively, not negatively. And the reason is because sometimes the people who are opposite us in our beliefs and our values, sometimes they're right. Sometimes they see something that we can't see, and that's because of sin. That's because of the noetic effect of the fall. And we are all have blind spots, and we all have things that we cannot see in ourselves, in our own tribe. Uh, and what I see is negative epistemology is kind of an implicit denial of the noetic effect of sin. And it's saying, well, you're affected by the fall, but I'm not. I can kind of see clearly, and I'm just kind of going to use you as a bellwether. And one of the effects of negative epistemology is that people end up being okay with things that in their wildest dreams, they never thought they would be. They end up excusing behaviors that they never would have thought of excusing. They end up kind of papering over things that they never would have thought. And that's because their values formations have actually shifted to fit their kind of cultural animosities. So I, and I think that is something that, that the Bible really does speak directly to. There's issues of love of neighbor there, but I think there's issues of truth. There's issues of how we're centering our intellectual lives. Are we, are we just trying to kind of own the other side or are we actually allowing 
the truth of the gospel, which is that we're sinners in need of a savior and we have permanent noetic effects, intellectual effects of, of being sinners. Uh, and we need people to help us see that. Um, so I think, I think it's an issue of faithfulness to the Lord as well as just an intellectual scourge. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way to approach it. I'm glad that you dug into that a little bit because way it kind of reminds me of Robert George years ago, he wrote a book called A Clash of Worldviews. And often we, especially as Christians, we know that we're involved in a spiritual battle. There's spiritual warfare going on. And I think one of the things I picked up from a writer years ago about how we often see our times, the times that we live in, as the end times. We always think of that there's this ultimate clash of worldviews. There's this battle going on. But we often see it as between flesh and blood. It's us versus them. And we see that kind of tribalization and polarization kind of run rampant today, especially with the rise of social media. But I think we often kind of cast ourselves as it, we live in the end times. And we know that we don't know when that is going to be. We don't know when Christ is coming back, but we do know he is. But I think we often then, it kind of reminds me of what I tell a lot of my students when I'm talking about worldviews, is that while we do have a clash of worldviews going on, it's as Christians, the battle that we're fighting against the principalities and powers of evil, it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against fellow image bearers. And so we can often, especially in the social media age, we lump and define someone's utility or their value and their worth based on their ideas. And we can't often separate those two things as a person from their ideas. And I think that's really difficult and kind of deleterious in many ways for Christians when we're approaching these things is we have to be able to see through someone's ideas and their worldview to see their value and worth as a fellow image bearer, that kind of love of neighbor that you referenced earlier. And so I think that's a, at least a helpful way that I've been trying to kind of articulate about how we navigate a lot of these tensions in society. And this doesn't mean that we gloss over issues, that we gloss over issues of truth and over life and a lot of the important issues we face today, but we do so seeing people as more than just their ideas. Because I don't know, I, I figure you've probably read um, or at least know about Jonathan Rauch's new book, The Constitution of Knowledge. It's a really fabulous book. Um, I disagree with Rauch on a number of issues, but he helped me become a better thinker, even though I disagree with him on some of the perennial kind of fundamental issues in terms of marriage and sexuality, in terms of culture, in terms of politics, in terms of kind of social expressions and a number of things. But he helped me to think deeper. And I think that's something that as Christians, as we're thinking through developing virtue and becoming better intellectual leaders and thinkers, is to engage with ideas that we might not think on the outset are going to challenge us or push us. Or maybe, as you said, they're going to pick up on certain elements of truth that we just miss. And so I think that's why I love this idea of this concept that you've kind of developed of negative epistemology, because I think it helps us to navigate a lot of those tensions of the day. Can you help us to think about how this kind of negative epistemology concept tends to shape not just our social interactions or interactions as Christians, maybe online, but even kind of when we're approaching political issues, there's a lot of hot button political issues and a lot of really important issues we're trying to uh, navigate today as a society. How do you think this concept of kind of negative epistemology helps us uh, navigate a lot of those tensions in society, especially really important political ones? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, maybe one way to answer the question would be to kind of just mention briefly kind of the positive side of negative epistemology, or at least kind of its origin, which I think is positive. I think it comes from a, a true belief that ideas have consequences. 
So you begin with the idea that a person's worldview, a person's uh, religious philosophical commitments, they have trickle down effects. So they condition us to uh, react in certain ways and to believe certain things. And I think that's absolutely true and a, a very important thing to understand about how, who we are as people made in the image of God and, and as rational creatures. I think the danger is when we kind of argue instead of deductively, when we argue kind of from the bottom up and we say, okay, well, what I'm going to do is if, if ideas have consequences and worldviews have effects, I'm going to separate good worldview, bad worldview into their respective groups. And everything that comes out of the group of with a bad worldview is automatically wrong because of where it comes from. And so politically, uh, what you what you see is issues. One example would be conservatives and things like child tax credits and, um, you know, certain kind of economic issues. But we can have healthy debates about those kinds of things. But it's not uncommon to hear conservatives say, well, this is what Democrats want. So we can't do it. Uh, well, but that's that's simply not the correct way to go about it. It's it's not an issue of who came up with this idea. OK, if they came up with it, it must be wrong. That's just going to lead you into all sorts of all sorts of mayhem. And then, of course, obviously, the, the the more common way we see the excessiveness of this is whatever my side does is right. So you're you end up excusing things in your own political party or even kind of changing your ethical uh, formulations to kind of fit what's going on in your tribe, uh, because you're, you, you know that to admit any kind of flaw in your tribe is going to give a rhetorical victory to the other side. And that's what you're, that's what cannot happen. It's very eschatological, as you were alluding to kind of this end times belief that, you know, there's only good people and bad people. Um, and interestingly, you mentioned the Rauch book, a, a, a book similar like that to, for me has been, uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff's book, Coddling of the American Mind. And in that book, Haidt and Lukianoff, who are not Christians, they are social liberals, uh, but they're talking about like, kind of mainstream college culture, you know, kind of trigger warning, safe spaces, that kind of thing. And one of the things that they say about kind of modern progressivism is that it has three great untruths. And one of those great untruths is the world is made up of bad people versus good people. And it's so interesting to hear them describe progressivism that way when there's so much of kind of that ethos that is typically associated with like fundamentalist Christianity. And so I think that's been a little bit revealing to see this is how progressivism treats people. This is how you know, a worldview that's untethered from human dignity. It's untethered from the image of God. It's expressive individualism. This is how it treats people. When, when you stop kind of being valuable to the group, well, we're going to cut you off. We're going to cancel you. You're not worth anything anymore. Uh, and so that's why, you know, Christians have to articulate a much higher view of ideas and of people. And I think in the political realm, you just end up with a moral mess uh, when you start thinking in terms of who's saying what, uh, and that's going to let me kind of shape my response to it. Yeah, I know that someone's probably been pretty influential in your life. I know they've been influential in mine is the late Carl F.H. Henry. And so when he talks a lot about kind of navigating a lot of the tensions of his day, which is really funny when you go back and look at some of the issues that he was facing or even go back to even 
Jacques Ellul and the issues he was facing, it's, it seems almost trite compared to some of the tensions that we're dealing with today. But I've noticed that a lot of these thinkers outside of our current context can actually see our context better. This is um, C.S. Lewis talks about this in the one of his introductions to uh, Athanasius and work. He'll talk about Plato and how some of these older thinkers actually help us to think clearer about our present situations because they're not enamored in kind of the same kind of, in many ways, epistemological patterns uh, that we have today. I know as Christians, when we're talking about epistemology and we're talking about the nature of truth and, and the ability to know what we know, obviously truth is central to a Christian worldview. Henry speaks of this as the unity of truth, uh, which is really beautiful. I, lo- I love that as, along with Bavink, Herman Bavink, who's been really influential in my life, who talk about all truth as God's truth in some sense. Like if God is the creator of the universe, he has created us in his image and he's called us to live a certain way. There isn't a divide between science and faith. They're actually speaking the same language if they're being seen and processed uh, properly. And so as truth being a central component of the worldview and the pursuit of wisdom being key to the Christian faith, um, we are a people of truth. And that's what I, especially in terms of conspiracy theories and misinformation and a lot of these kind of modern takes on truth or non-truth, it's been really interesting to me to see how people in some sense excuse away these things, as you said earlier, David French mentions this in his Divided We Fall book about nutpicking, where we take the worst example of someone's position and act like that is the totality of that position or the natural outworking as we gloss over the kind of shortcomings in our own political tribe or even social tribe or even our own faith and act like those really don't define us, but that one person defines this entire movement. So what ways, I guess, do you see other kind of epistemological challenges forming and shaping Christians today that in ways that are counter to the gospel. So ways that technology are shaping us in ways that are counter to what we claim to believe. Yeah. And we've talked a little bit about tribalism and, you know, it's don't want to be a broken record, but I, I think for a lot of Christians, particularly in our kind of conservative expression of evangelicalism, that is one of the most pressing ones. I think another one probably is kind of almost on the flip side of that. I think one temptation is to use technologies like the internet to kind of so enter the experiences of other people that you lose truth in the process. Uh, and I, I think that is, I think that tends to be more of a danger for people who would be a little more to the center or even to the left in kind of American Christian expressions. Uh, but I think pastorally, that is a, a big temptation. You can kind of allow uh, this disembodied kind of relation of narrative that happens on the internet to become the total truth. So one of the things I, I say is the digital world has liturgies. So there are specific kind of liturgies of digital culture. And one of them, one of the chief ones is my story is my truth. Uh, on the culture of the internet, that is the only currency that matters is your narrative, your experience. And uh, everyone is expected to interpret the world by their experience and to not never have that interpretation challenged. I think pastorally, that's a big challenge because you have to be sensitive to when people are hurting, when people have negative experiences, say, inside the local church. Uh, and we're we're a little bit nervous about totally sympathizing with that because does it kind of delegitimize the church? Are we, are we, do, are we having to pick a side here? 
And I, those challenges are real and hard to navigate, particularly in a disembodied context. But also, you can't let people's narratives, you can't let human interpretations of experiences be ultimate authority. Uh, and that is very tempting to do on, online, particularly, Jason, because when we're on the Internet, we don't have real presence. We're not there. Our bodies are not there. In many cases, our faces are not there. And there is something about disembodied spaces that tends toward haywire epistemology. When you bring people together physically, there are certain things that are simply more intuitive that are aligned with what the Lord has embedded in nature. And when you take that presence away, uh, it becomes more easy to manipulate people's beliefs toward uh, certain kinds of ends. And I think that's, I think that's one expression that I've seen pop up a few different times. And, and it's, it's challenging. It's, it's part of kind of navigating this, this odd space that we have where people are kind of going to the internet for spiritual encouragement to be heard. People are sharing their stories and that's very important. And it's a good thing and much good has come out of that. Uh, but it's important to not let the, the tail wag the dog, so to speak. Uh, and to kind of uh, allow ourselves to be decentered simply because we're disembodied online. So it's something to be super conscious of and, and speaking to ourselves constantly about. Yeah, this will have to be a conversation for another time. But I know one of the most concerning things that I've heard as of late is uh, you hear a lot about Facebook and other companies developing the metaverse, uh, which if listeners aren't familiar with the metaverse, it's simply like kind of virtual reality kind of a large, expansive, it's not specific to a certain platform or a specific company, um, but a, a grouping, kind of a, in many ways, a new world uh, that we can gather in virtually. And one of the things that I've, it's always bothered me when it's talked about like this, but it's talked about is the embodied internet. And to me, that's a complete misnomer. Like It just doesn't work because we are disembodied, even if we're quote unquote, re-embodied in these kind of virtual avatars or in these virtual worlds, they are disembodied. It's cut off from the physical world around us. Um, so we can talk about maybe that on another podcast one day, kind of the metaverse and virtual reality and how it's shaping and forming us. Because while I think a lot of people aren't thinking about it right now, because it seems like, oh yeah, I don't have one of those virtual reality devices. In many ways, that's where many are thinking we're heading, that we're going to have more life and this kind of disembodied, embodied internet type of thing where we have meetings in virtual reality. Um, and so some of the work that I'm doing, some of the groups I'm involved in, they're talking about, let's we're going to have our next meeting in virtual reality. And I'm kind of excited to try it in some sense, but in the same respect, I'm a little leery of it because as Christians, we know it's not just about our mental capacity. That's not who we are. It's just our mental. It's that our bodies are very important to who we are. So we had Greg Allison on a while ago talking about embodiment and the importance of that. Uh, but I just noticed you've turned, you've used that term a few different times, and especially with technology, some are now kind of talking about doing the embodied internet. So we can get to that and talk about it another time. There, there's a there's a great film. I, I'm sure many people have have seen it. Inception, uh, directed by Christopher Nolan, uh, and the plot of the film is about this technology that's invented at some point that allows people to share a dream. So people kind of connect to each other and they they pass out, they go to sleep, and they share kind of this dream world. Well, there's a scene that is pretty metaphorical for where we are in digital technology where um, the main characters kind of go into this room where dozens of people are asleep in kind of like this cavernous environment. And it turns out that these dozens of people 
wake up every day in the real world and then they come to spend hours of every day connected to this dream machine with each other. And in their dreams, they're basically constructing a second life. And one of the characters says, so all these people come here to fall asleep. And then another character says, no, they come here to wake up. The dream has become their reality. And I think in disembodied uh, context of the internet, that's what happens is that the dream becomes the reality. The disembodied space becomes where people actually want to construct their identity and live. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, we'll definitely have to have you back on at some point to talk about kind of embodiment and the internet and kind of this new culture that we live in. One of the things that you do in your, your world column that I thought was really helpful is that you speak of Christians maybe needing to rethink some of the patterns that we've developed with technology or even to rethink the use of tools kind of completely, thinking about maybe there are certain tools or certain technologies that we just decide not to use moving forward or at least rethinking a lot of our patterns and habits we developed. So as we start to end our kind of close out our time today, uh, what are some practical things that you would encourage Christians as we're pursuing truth and wisdom in the digital age? What are some practical tips, things that we should be thinking about um, as we pursue wisdom and truth in the digital age? Yeah, that's a great question. A couple of guys who have helped me on this, uh, Justin Early, um, his book, uh, The Common Rule. Um, has been very helpful for me in terms of maintaining consciousness of daily rhythms. So Justin really commends building in, actively building in spaces in your day for screen-free time, for thinking clearly, for praying, uh, for basically setting up regular quote-unquote Sabbaths uh, to take from technology. And what, what that does is it makes sure that your attention is regularly turned toward where you are, where the Lord has you. And that discipline of directing your attention in the right place, uh, will, I think, help preserve. And it has for me, even though I, I don't, I'm not as faithful to that as I should be, but it has helped me kind of remember, okay, this is what's real. This is what, uh, this is what good thinking is like. Um, I can, there are even times even now where I'm, I'm just scrolling Twitter and I think I got to get off because I'm starting to kind of feel in myself some of these negative habits of thought. And it's, it's not a one time thing. It's not like, you know, there's some people who struggle with this and there's some people who not, who don't. And the people who do struggle with this need to just get on board. This is just life in the 21st century. And we all have to build in these habits and rhythms. Another guy who's been helpful on this is Cal Newport. And uh, I don't I don't think Cal Newport's a believer, uh, but one of the things that he says that I, I think is really true and, and relevant for Christians is all technology use needs to serve your values. Your value does not need to be maximal use of technology. Um, there's always going to be a better device. There's always going to be another productivity thing. There's always going to be another reason to just hunker down with these devices. Um, but are these technologies actually serving your values or are you serving the values of the technology corporations? I think that's a really important question. So what is it that we value or do we have the right values? Are we treasuring what the Lord wants us to treasure? Are we prioritizing what the Lord wants us to prioritize? And then after we've established that, figuring out, okay, does this technology that I'm concerned about or that I'm considering, does this detract from that or does this push me toward my values? And sometimes the answer is going to be, hey, it actually helps in a certain way. And then you just think through like, okay, use that wisely. But I think for some of us, there's going to be some technologies that we have to say, this really doesn't have any redemptive value in my life other than I can't imagine what I would do without it. But it's not pushing me toward my values. It's just there. And I think there is where we need to think a little bit more extremely about, 
okay, are there, are there social media technologies? Are there habits that I just need to get rid of and really need to, to build some different patterns of life uh, where those things are currently? I think that's really helpful. And it's funny, normally we end our conversations always talking about some recommended resources. I feel like throughout the podcast, we've been recommending various books. But one of the things, we'll link to all of those in the show notes for listeners to be able to grab copies of the various books and kind of authors we've talked about so far. But what are a couple books? I mean, if somebody wanted to go a little bit deeper into this, maybe to peel back the onion a little bit. And so instead of just tips and tricks and kind of kind of technology patterns and habits, maybe getting into some more of the philosophy of technology or ethics of technology, what are some books that you might recommend for listeners to dig into uh, something that maybe benefited you or at least kind of help people to dig into some of these concepts around epistemology, for example? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, the number one resource I recommend is The Shallows. Uh, Shallows by Nicholas Carr. Um, I honestly, if, if for all pastors and church leaders who are listening to this, please buy that book. Please read it. It is, it is a paradigm shaping book. Um, so I think every Christian who wants to be in leadership or an influence needs to be familiar with the arguments in that book. You may not agree with everything, but it really does set a foundation for understanding what the effects of these technologies are. I think Andy Crouch really gave the, uh, the church a gift when he wrote the tech wise family. That's, that's a very hopeful book. Uh, it's a very practical book. Uh, and it's very thoughtful. It's, it's not too hackish. It's, it's very rooted in biblical wisdom and in a knowledge of human nature. So Andy Crouch's book, uh, The Tech Wise Family is another good one. Uh, Tony Reinke has a book called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. He also has another one called Competing Spectacles. Tony is a really articulate writer on Christianity and tech issues. 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You would be a great resource to give to a college student, a high school student, someone who is just kind of on the receiving end of these technologies and maybe thinking about them for the first time. Uh, really articulate book. And then Competing Spectacles is kind of a theology of Christian epistemology in uh, a digital age. So it's a really helpful. It's a short resource. So it's, it's very consumable, um, but it's very thoughtful. Uh, yeah, those would just be a few. Uh, Neil Postman, I think, has written uh, also some, some really essential texts on this. Um, I'm reading Technopoly right now for the first time. Uh, which is becoming a really helpful read. Uh, but also his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, has just really aged well. He wrote that book about television uh, back in the 70s, late 70s, 80s or so. He had television in his sights, and it's just incredible how much of that book can be lifted and applied to the Internet. I, I really wish we could have gotten Neil Postman uh, writing on the Internet, but Amusing Ourselves to Death is, is one of those essential texts along with uh, The Shallows. So yeah, that's just a, a little grab bag for listeners, but uh, definitely recommend. There's a lot of good resources on here. Um, I think evangelicals are starting to articulate on these issues quite a bit more, which is a good thing. And I think I think being conscious of this is is really step number one. There's a, there's a lot that people won't be able to do very quickly. You're not going to be able to delete all your accounts. You're not going to be able to take a a, a six month sabbatical from all these technologies. That's fine. Honestly, the, the war really begins uh, with consciousness and just being aware of this thing. And then out of that consciousness, the Lord tends to grant wisdom as we submit ourselves to his word. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. That's one of the things we talk about a lot here on the podcast is the nature of understanding what's actually going on, which is the major first step, uh, which is a lot of these books, especially the Postman volumes recommended, um, I think are really helpful. I love the 20th anniversary of his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. His, I think it was his son 
wrote kind of a foreword to it, uh, which was really interesting. Basically, like if he was around now writing about social media, I can't imagine what he would be saying uh, because he was saying certain things about like television news and things like that. Um, but yeah, both of those are really prescient books. But I say all that to say is that there's so much good here is that's again, it's about understanding what technology is doing. And then kind of the other thing that we talk a lot about is slowing down. Um, in an age that prizes efficiency and speed and everything, this is kind of a little bit of a lul coming out, is that slowing down can be one of the most countercultural things we can do. Not countercultural in the sense of like political or social culture, but the technological culture that we live in is it pushes back against that to help us to slow down a little bit, to be more thoughtful. And that's one of the things that I like about this podcast. And I've really enjoyed about your writing overall, but specifically this column that you did at World. Um, as it does, it causes us to slow down a little bit, ask them questions to seek wisdom. So Samuel, I really appreciate you joining me today here on the Digital Public Square. I appreciate your writing your work. Um, and I really look forward. Hopefully we'll have you back sometime soon. Maybe we can talk about the metaverse or something. Would love that, Jason. Appreciate this and appreciate this podcast and what you're doing in this space. It's so needed. And I hope this can encourage your listeners. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Samuel James and read his latest column at World Opinion, as well as the recommended resources we talked about today in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, along with staying up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.